Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. I'm Isaac Wheeler. I co-head the SNC Tax Group, and with me today are Davis Wang, my fellow co-head and co-host, and we're also joined by Tom Mullins in our DC office. We're going to be talking about the legislative outlook post midterms, and Tom, as our government affairs specialist in Washington has his finger on the pulse here. All right. So we know the results of the midterms. We don't know everything, but we know the important stuff. We know that the Democrats have a slim majority in the Senate. That is regardless of what happens in Georgia. And we know the Republicans have a slim majority in the House. Right now, 219 seats for the Republicans, 212 for the Dems and there are still four undecided. So I think it's fair to say that the outlook for significant tax legislation in the next two years is pretty bleak, and we can all decide internally whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But that does not mean that tax legislation stops altogether. And so we wanted to have this conversation with Tom to drill down a little bit more granularly in terms of what the next two years might bring. So why don't we start with the lame duck period? Tom, is there anything on the agenda that we should be looking out for during the lame duck period? So Congress passed a stopgap measure to fund the government's 2023 fiscal year, which started October 1st through December 16th. And lawmakers either need to pass a spending bill for the rest of this fiscal year or pass another short-term stopgap measure or risk a government shutdown. So until December 16th comes around, we won't really know the field on which the lame duck will be played. But presumably, this would, in whatever iteration uh, this takes, there's some low-hanging fruit legislatively. Principally, a retirement bill, Secure 2.0, which is intended to build upon improvements to the retirement system that was ushered in by the 2019 SECURE Act. It's self-funded, although with the prodigious use of timing shifts and other gimmicks, with 50 parts from several committees. These changes include giving part-time workers better access to retirement benefits and increasing the age when required minimum distributions from certain retirement accounts must start to age 72 from age 70 and a half. The bill also shares provision in the House and Senate, it's still being negotiated, that allows distributions to certain split interest entities to qualify as distributions made directly to charity. So under current law, distributions of up to $100,000 per year to public charities, other than a donor advised fund or supporting organization, qualify. This bill extends the rule to allow distributions to trusts and charitable gift annuities, which is gaining some attraction. The other hope is for some action on the extenders bill. Often extenders have been passed in lame ducks. It's a convenient time to shift things through, which maybe should be paid for, but putting them on the tab. And there's four buckets to which extenders fall into. There's COVID-related policies like the ERTC, the Employer Retention Tax Credit, there are the traditional extenders that have previously been extended several times. There are ARPA's healthcare credits. And then there's the TCJA expirations. And this last category has the most interest from business coalitions. At the end of 21, 
business had to amortize R&D over five years rather than immediately. This was a revenue raiser in TCJA, and restoring this for one year would cost $60 billion, and 10 years is $155 billion. 10 years would presume permanence. At the same time, the deduction for business interest expense was limited to 30% of EBIT instead of EBITDA. One-year cost for extending that is $20 billion, and 10 years is $200 billion. And after this year, full expensing for short-life business investments will begin phasing out. One-year extension is $15 billion, and a 10-year is $250 billion. So we don't know what the lengths of extension policymakers could pursue, although taking it to the end of 2025, lining up with the major TCJA expirations is a logical thought. We know there won't be design changes because this bill is going to have to move so quickly. So we can calculate that the pre-2022 policy for these three changes would cost roughly $100 billion in the first calendar year. So if enacted on a truly temporary one-year basis, the 10-year cost would fall to around $25 billion since most of the taxes not paid in the first year would be recovered in future years for bonus depreciation and R&E expensing. On a permanent basis, these policies would cost substantially more, around $600 billion over a decade. Historically, Democrats have tried to find revenues to offset the cost of extenders, and Republicans have argued the current law budget baseline already accommodates their existence, and so there's no need for offsets. This year, some senior Democrats have advanced the idea that some or all of these extenders could be married to the key Democratic ambition of expanding the child tax credit so that it's fully available to the poorest recipients. Now, the $1.6 trillion cost of permanent CTC extension seems a stiff price to pay in exchange for $155 billion for R&D or $600 billion for the full panoply of extender package. So people have gotten busy on working out ways to drive the cost down on this. And the Progressive Policy Institute, using figures from the Tax Foundation, estimates that permanently repealing personal exemptions while retaining the increased standard deduction and credit for dependents not eligible for the CTC would reduce the net cost of the Democrats' expansion by more than $100 billion each year after 2025. So as a result, Democrats may need only $800 billion in additional offsets over the 10-year window to make current CTC permanent, and even less if they're willing to consider slightly smaller expansions. So a closer match to the business expander is $600 billion. That sounds awfully ambitious, doesn't it, for a lame duck session? I mean, we're talking about if that dream were to come true, it's not just standards, which we often see in the lame duck session, or something more technical. I mean, this is talking about a trillion dollars. I I understand it's ambitious, but in terms of what people are talking about for uh, the lame duck, there's very little ambition other than talking about this. Now, to be sure, we are not hearing about serious negotiations on this. Staff have put together various scenarios, but uh, we don't see the four corners engaging on this. And that probably won't happen until the budget headlines are worked out. Can I ask a question on sort of the slim majority element of this? So during the lame duck period, is it easier for the Democrats to build a coalition including some of the more left-leaning members of the party because they know that whatever power they have is going to expire when the new Congress is sworn in. So maybe that's question one. And then question two is, how does, if we move past the lame duck period, 
into 2023, how does the slim Republican majority play into either their plans or sort of overall picture for potential tax legislation? Well, McCarthy, as we saw, got a 188 to 31 vote in the Republican conference. Not all of those 31 were uh, hothead radicals of the right. There are people who got elected in purple districts, which were won by Biden, who are not impressed with McCarthy's commitment to America plan defunding the IRS on day one and investigating everything from the president's son to Wuhan labs. There are centrists who are now in both parties who are flexing their muscles. And Brian Fitzpatrick, for example, and Josh Gottheimer of the problem solvers have talked about the possible rules changes to help ensure their roughly 50 members next year are more unified, therefore more powerful. And the Main Street Caucus and the Republicans have about 90 members. And they've been talking to the Freedom Caucus members and Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus about where they could find common cause. So there's a lot of flux going on in terms of how coalitions could be built. And people are uh, talking, uh, I mean, there's a group of, another group of centrist Democrats who privately are discussing ways to play in the speaker race if it can be winning concessions, like rule changes and committee structures. So there's a lot of palace intrigue, which is taking up a lot of the time that would usually be used for legislating. And we have to just wait and see how that plays out. And so for 2023, I'm envisioning a world where the only possible avenues for tax legislation are appending something to a bill that is sort of a must pass, like a raising of the debt ceiling or avoiding a government shutdown. Is that the right way to think about what's going to happen in 2023 and I guess 2024 as well? Yeah, there's a um, National Defense Authorization Act, the Omnibus, or God forbid, a CR. And there's even talk of uh, trying to use reconciliation for debt ceiling suspension, which was done in once in the 80s and three times in the 90s. So there's precedent for that. That's unlikely, but that's being talked about. And then there is a vast wasteland of uh, opportunities for legislation, assuming these different coalitions that I talked about, new coalitions work out some imaginative workaround. So I think most of the action will really be at Treasury and the IRS, although we have to get beyond uh, Danny Werfel being confirmed as IRS commissioner, so he can put his stamp on the report that the agency is due to produce in February on how the $800 billion allocation in the IRA will be handled. Although, while it would be nice to run them through now, Democrats, having held the Senate, don't seem to have much stress about this. And in fact, uh, the White House still hasn't sent over all these papers. So that may be a wait. But I think Treasury is going to be the place to watch as IRA rules and proposals come out. That'll be where the action is. Um, that's that. That was my thinking exactly. Right, that probably most of the action would be at the Treasury, even though there is that question mark about the IRS commissioner. Do you have any sense on timing on the regulations that people are expecting 
in respect of, for example, the stock buyback tax and the book minimum tax? Because you they, know, uh, uh, yeah, I've I've seen lobbyists uh, sort of assail Democratic legislators and Treasury and IRS people. And the partisan response is the TCJA was passed with very little time before effective dates came in. And I didn't hear you complaining then. So, you know, eat your soup and, uh, and just deal with it. They're not really being very accommodating in terms of what to expect and when to expect it. So we just kind of look at the Federal Register and see what, what's going to OMB. That'll be our best, I think, indication of how things are moving. So I have this theory that I'm not sure it's supported by any evidence, but but it sort of makes sense logically to me, which is that in, in times of divided government where it's next to impossible to pass meaningful legislation, that Treasury may feel a bit more emboldened to reach at the limits of its regulatory authority. I think that you know, during the second part of the Obama administration, some of the more aggressive regs came out of Treasury in the 385 and anti-inversion space. Any truth to that, or is that just pure anecdotal evidence that I'm looking to support something on? Well, remember, this is all going to happen in a Republican majority in the House, and they seem to be hell-bent on investigating anything that moves. So... They're already talking about subpoenaing Itai Greenberg from the deputy assistant for multilateral tax treasury to find the inside story of what happened with the OECD and Pillar 1s and Pillar 1 and 2 responses. So Treasury will have to be careful not to uh, get too flamboyant lest it find itself uh, in an uncomfortable congressional hearing. That, that makes sense. Last point, Tom, and then maybe we'll think it's probably time for us to wrap. We have to overlay all these changes with the negotiations that are ongoing at the OECD level. Is there any sense in how the midterms have shifted discussions on on pillar two, you know, that that are occurring at the at the global stage? I think that the Republicans are resentful of Treasury's treatment of them in their previous document uh, requests. And there is a sort of built-in skepticism of anything which increases the the tax obligations of U.S. uh, champions. However, there's also going to be a lot of resentment at the DSTs, which would be springing up as the U.S. stays out of pillar, Pillar 2. I've heard people complaining about European DSTs picking our pockets while we pay for their defense in Ukraine. So there's some antagonism that's uh, built in there, which Treasury will need to, and the OECD will need to contend with. I don't think the Senate is going to be able to push it over the line to um, reframe guilty or, or the uh, recent IRA corporate taxes. With uh, to conform with uh, OACD. I think then maybe what what is true at the at the national level, then then also sort of becomes true at the global level, which is the ability to enact significant reform is 
is going to be a little bit hamstrung or at least more difficult in the near term than it was before, which is which was as expected, I think. So on that note, Tom, thank you again for your time. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for listening to SNC's Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.sulcrom.com.